Section 1 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 1. Book 1. Part 1. O bountiful Venus, mother of the race of Aeneas, delight of gods and men, who, beneath the gliding constellations of heaven, fillest with life the ship-bearing sea and the fruit-producing earth, since by thy influence every kind of living creature is conceived, and springing forth hails the light of the sun. Thee, O goddess, thee the winds flee, before thee, in thy approach the clouds of heaven disperse for thee the variegated earth puts forth her fragrant flowers on thee the waters of ocean smile and the calmed heaven beams with effulgent light for as soon as the vernal face of day is unveiled and the genial gale of favonius exerts its power unconfined the birds of the air first o goddess testify of thee and thy coming, smitten in heart by thy influence. Next, the wild herds bound over the joyous pastures, and swim across the rapid streams. So all kinds of living creatures, captivated by thy charms and thy allurements, eagerly follow thee whithersoever thou proceedest to lead them. In fine, Throughout seas and mountains and whelming rivers and the leafy abodes of birds and verdant plains, thou, infusing balmy love into the breasts of all, causest them eagerly to propagate their races after their kind. Since thou alone dost govern all things in nature, neither does anything without thee spring into the ethereal realms of light, nor anything becomes gladsome or lovely, I desire thee to be my associate in this my song, which I am essaying to compose on the nature of things, for the instruction of my friend Memmius, whom thou, O goddess, hast willed at all times to excel, graced with every gift. The more, therefore, do thou, O goddess, bestow on my words an immortal charm. Cause the fierce pursuit of war, meanwhile, to cease, being lulled to rest throughout all seas and lands. For thou alone canst bless mortals with tranquil peace, since Mars, the lord of arms who controls the cruel tasks of war, often flings himself upon thy lap, vanquished by the eternal wound of love. And thus looking up, his graceful neck thrown back, he feasts his eager eyes with love, gazing intently on thee, O goddess, and his breath, as he reclines, hangs on thy lips. Bending over him, O goddess, as he reposes, to embrace him with thy sacred person, pour from thy lips sweet converse, entreating unruffled peace, illustrious divinity, for thy romance. For neither can we pursue our task with tranquil mind, in this untranquil time of our country, nor can the illustrious scion of Memmius. At such a crisis, 
desert the common interest. For what remains? Lend me, O Memmius, thy unprejudiced ears, and apply thyself, released from cares, to the investigation of truth, and leave not, as things despised, my offerings arranged for thee with faithful zeal, before they are understood. For I shall proceed to discourse to thee of the whole system of heaven and the gods, and unfold to thee the first principles of all things from which nature produces, develops, and sustains all, and into which she again resolves them at their dissolution. These, in explaining our subject, we are accustomed to call matter, and the generative bodies of things, and to designate as the seeds of all things, and to term them primary bodies, because from them, as primary, all things are derived. For the whole nature of the gods must necessarily, of itself, enjoy immortality in absolute repose, separated, and far removed from our affairs. For, exempt from all pain, exempt from perils, all sufficient in its own resources, and needing nothing from us, it is neither propitiated by services from the good, nor affected with anger against the bad. When the life of men lay foully groveling before our eyes, crushed beneath the weight of a religion, who displayed her head from the regions of the sky, lowering over mortals with terrible aspect, a man of Greece was the first that dared to raise mortal eyes against her, and first to make a stand against her. Him neither tales of God, nor thunderbolts, nor heaven itself with its threatening roar, repressed, but roused the more the active energy of his soul, so that he should desire to be the first to break the close bars of nature's portals. Accordingly, the vivid force of his intellect prevailed, and proceeded far beyond the flaming battlements of the world, and in mind and thought traversed the whole immensity of space. Hence triumphant, he declares to us what can arise into being, and what cannot. In fine, in what way the powers of all things are limited, and a deeply fixed boundary assigned to each. By which means religion, brought down under our feet, is bruised in turn and his victory sets us on a level with heaven. In treating of these subjects, I fear thou mayst haply think that thou art entering on forbidden elements of philosophy, and commencing a course of crime. Whereas, on the contrary, that much extolled religion has too frequently given birth to criminal and impious deeds. As when at Aulis, the chosen leaders of the Greeks, the chief of men, foully stained the altar of the virgin trivia with the blood of Iphigenia. When the fillet, clasping her virgin tresses, dropped from each cheek in equal length, and she saw her sire stand sorrowing before the altars, and the attendant priests close by him, concealing the knife, and her countrymen shedding tears at the sight of her, she, dumb with fear, dropping on her knees, sank to the earth nor could it, at such a time, avail the hapless maiden that she had been the first to bless the king with the name of father. For, raised by the hands of men, and trembling, she was led to the altar. 
not that the solemn service of sacrifice being performed she might be accompanied with the loud bridal hymn, but spotless, though stained, she might, even in her wedding prime, fall a sad victim by her father's immolating hand, that a successful and fortunate voyage might be granted to the fleet. To such evils could religion persuade mankind. Wilt thou, too, overcome by the frightful tales of bards, ever seek to turn away from me? Surely not, for doubtless I, even now, could invent for thee many dreams, which might disturb the tenor of thy life, and confound all thy enjoyments with terror. And with reason, too, under the present system of belief, for did men but know that there was a fixed limit to their woes, they would be able, in some measure, to defy the religious fictions and menaces of the poets. But now, since we must fear eternal punishment at death, there is no mode, no means of resisting them. For men know not what the nature of the soul is, whether it is engendered with us, or whether, on the contrary, it is infused into us at our birth, whether it perishes with us, dissolves by death, or whether it haunts the gloomy shades and vast pools of orcas, or whether, by divine influence, it infuses itself into other animals, as our Aeneas sung, who first brought from pleasant Helicon a crown of never-fading leaf, which should be distinguished in fame throughout the Italian tribes of men. Though, in addition, however, Aeneas, setting it forth in deathless song, declares that there are temples of Acheron, whither neither our souls nor our bodies penetrate, but only phantoms, strangely pale, from amongst whom he relates that the apparition of undying Homer, rising up before him, began to pour forth briny tears, and to expound in words the nature of things. Wherefore with reason, then, not only an inquiry concerning celestial affairs is to be accurately made by us, as by what means the courses of the sun and moon are effected, and by what influence all things individually are directed upon the earth, but especially also we must consider, with scrutinizing examination, of what the soul and the nature of the mind consist, and what it is which, haunting us, sometimes when awake and sometimes when overcome by disease or buried in sleep, terrifies the mind, so that we seem to behold and to hear speaking before us those whose bones after death is past the earth embraces. Nor does it escape my consideration that it is difficult to explain in Latin verse the profound discoveries of the Greeks, especially since we must treat of much in novel words, on account of the poverty of our language, and the novelty of the subjects. But yet thy virtues, and the expected pleasure of thy sweet friendship, prompt me to endure any labor whatsoever, and induce me to outwatch the clear cold nights, weighing with what words, with what possible verse I may succeed in displaying to thy mind those clear lights, by which thou mayst be able to gain a thorough insight into these abstruse subjects. This terror and darkness of the mind, therefore, it is not the rays of the sun, or the bright shafts of day, that must dispel, but reason, and the contemplation of nature, of which our first principle shall hence take its commencement, that nothing is ever divinely generated from nothing. 
for thus it is that fear restrains all men, because they observe many things effected on the earth and in heaven, of which effects they can by no means see the causes, and therefore think that they are wrought by a divine power. For which reasons, when we shall have clearly seen that nothing can be produced from nothing, we shall then have a more accurate perception of that of which we are in search, and shall understand whence each individual thing is generated, and how all things are done without the agency of the gods. For, if things came forth from nothing, every kind of thing might be produced from all things. Nothing would require seed. In the first place, man might spring from the sea. The scaly tribe and birds might spring from the earth. Herds and other cattle might burst from the sky. The cultivated fields, as well as the deserts, might contain every kind of wild animal, without any settled law of production. Nor would the same fruits be constant to the same trees, but would be changed. And all trees might bear all kinds of fruit. Since, when there should not be generative elements for each production, how could a certain parent producer remain invariable for all individual things? But now, because all things are severally produced from certain seeds, each is produced and comes forth into the regions of light from that spot in which the matter and first elements of each subsist. And for this cause all things cannot be produced from all, inasmuch as there are distinct and peculiar faculties in certain substances. Besides, why do we see the rose put forth in spring, corn in summer heat, and vines under the influence of autumn, if it be not because, when the determinate seeds of things have united together at their proper time, whatever is produced appears, while the seasons are favorable, and while the vigorous earth securely brings forth her tender productions into the regions of light? But if these things were generated from nothing, they might arise suddenly at indefinite periods, and at unsuitable seasons of the year, inasmuch as there would be no original elements which might be restrained from a generative combination at any season, however inconvenient. Nor, moreover, would there be need of time for the coming together of seed, for the growth of things, if they could grow out of nothing. For young men might on a sudden be formed from puny infants and groves, springing up unexpectedly, might dart forth from the earth, of which things it is plain that none happen, since all things grow gradually, as is fitting, from unvarying atoms, and as they grow, preserve their kind, so that you may understand that all things individually are enlarged and nourished from their own specific matter. Add to this that the earth cannot furnish her cheering fruits without certain rains in the year. Nor, moreover, can the nature of animals, if kept from food, propagate their kind and sustain life. So that you may rather deem that many elements are common to many things, as we see letters common to many words, than that anything can exist without its proper elements. Still further, why could not nature produce men of such a size that they might ford the sea on foot, and ran great mountains with their hands, and outlast in existence many ages of human life, if it be not because certain matter has been assigned for producing certain things, 
from which matter it is fixed what can or cannot arise. It must be admitted, therefore, that nothing can be made from nothing, since things have need of seed, from which all individually being produced may be brought forth into the gentle air of heaven. Lastly, since we observe that cultivated places excel the uncultivated, and yield to our hands better fruits, we may see that there are in the ground the primitive elements of things, which we, in turning the fertile glebe with the plowshare, and subjugating the soil of the earth, force into birth. But were there no such seeds, you might see things severally grow up and become much better of their own accord, without our labor. Add to that nature resolves each thing into its own constituent elements, and does not reduce anything to nothing. For if anything were perishable in all its parts, everything might then dissolve, being snatched suddenly from before our eyes, for there would be no need of force to produce a separation of its parts and break their connection. Whereas now, since all things individually consist of eternal seed, nature does not suffer the destruction of anything to be seen, until such power assail them as to severe them with a blow, or penetrate inwardly through the vacant spaces and dissolve the parts. Besides, if time utterly destroys whatever things it removes through length of age, consuming all their constituent matter, whence does Venus restore to the light of life the race of animals according to their kinds? Whence does the variegated earth nourish and develops them when restored, affording them sustenance according to their kinds? Whence do pure fountains and eternal rivers flowing from afar supply the sea? When does the ether feed the stars? For infinite time already past and length of days ought to have consumed all things which are of mortal consistence. But if those elements of which this sum of things consists and is renewed, have existed through that long space and that past duration of time, they are assuredly endowed with an immortal nature. Things, therefore, cannot return to nothing. Further, the same force and cause might destroy all things indiscriminately, unless an eternal matter held them more or less bound by mutual connection. For a mere touch, indeed, would be a sufficient cause of destruction, supposing that there were no parts of eternal consistence, but all perishable, the union of which any force might dissolve. But now, because various connections of elements unite together, and matter is eternal, things continue of unimpaired consistence, until some force of sufficient strength be found to assail them, proportioned to the texture of each. No thing, therefore, relapses into non-existence, but all things at dissolution return to the first principles of matter. Lastly, you may say, perhaps, the showers of rain perish when Father Ether has poured them down into the lap of Mother Earth. But it is not so, for hence the smiling fruits arise, and the branches become verdant on the trees. The trees themselves increase and are weighed down with produce. Hence, moreover, is nourished the race of men and that of beasts. Hence we see joyous cities abound with youth, and the leafy woods resound on every side 
with newly-fledged birds. Hence the weary cattle, sleek in the rich pastures, repose their bodies, and the white milky liquor flows from their distended udders. Hence the new offspring gambles sportive, with tottering limbs, over the tender grass, their youthful hearts exhilarated with pure milk. Things, therefore, do not utterly perish, which seem to do so, since nature recruits one thing from another, nor suffers anything to be produced unless its production be furthered by the death of another. Attend now further. Since I have shown that things cannot be produced from nothing, and also that, when produced, they cannot return to nothing, yet, lest haply thou shouldst begin to distrust my words, because the primary particles of things cannot be discerned by the eye, here, in addition, what substances thou thyself must necessarily confess to exist, although impossible to be seen. In the first place, the force of the wind, when excited, lashes the sea, agitates the tall ships, and scatters the clouds. At times, sweeping over the earth with an impetuous hurricane, it strews the plains with huge trees, and harasses the mountain-tops with forest-rending blasts. So violently does the deep chaff with fierce roar and rage with menacing murmur. The winds, then, are invisible bodies, which sweep the sea, the land, the clouds of heaven, and agitating them, carry them along with a sudden tornado. Not otherwise do they rush forth and spread destruction than as when a body of liquid water is borne along in an overwhelming stream, which a vast torrent from the lofty mountains swell with large rain-floods, dashing together fragments of woods and entire groves. Nor can the strong bridges sustain the sudden force of the sweeping water, with such overwhelming violence does the river, turbid with copious rain, rush against the opposing mounds. It scatters ruin with a mighty uproar, and rolls huge rocks under its waters. It rushes on, triumphant, wheresoever anything opposes its waves. Thus, therefore, must the blasts of the wind also be borne along, which, when, like a mighty flood, they have bent their force in any direction, drive all things before them, and overthrow them with repeated assaults, and sometimes catch them up in a writhing vortex, and rapidly bear them off in a whirling hurricane. Wherefore, I repeat, the winds are substances, though invisible, since in their effects and modes of operation they are found to rival mighty rivers, which are of manifest bodily substance. Moreover, we perceive various odors of objects, and yet never see them approaching our nostrils. Nor do we behold violent heat, or distinguish cold with our eyes, nor are we in the habit of viewing sounds, all which things, however, must of necessity consist of a corporeal nature, since they have the power of striking the senses, for nothing except bodily substance can touch or be touched. Further, garments when suspended upon a shore on which waves are broken grow moist. The same, when spread out in the sun, become dry. Yet, neither has it been observed how the moisture of the water settled in them, nor, on the other hand, how it escaped under the influence of the heat. The moisture, therefore, is dispersed into minute particles which our eyes can by no means perceive, 
Besides, in the course of many revolutions of the sun, a ring upon the finger is made somewhat thinner by wearing it. The fall of the drop from the eaves hollows a stone. The crooked share of the plough, though made of iron, imperceptibly decreases in the fields. Even the stone pavements of the streets we see worn by the feet of the multitude, and the brazen statues, which stand near the gates, show their right hands made smaller by the touch of people frequently saluting them and passing by. These objects, therefore, after they have been worn, we observe to become diminished. But what particles take their departure on each particular occasion, jealous nature has withheld from us the faculty of seeing. Lastly, whatever substances time and nature add little by little to objects, obliging them to increase gradually, those substances no acuteness of vision, however earnestly exerted, can perceive. Nor, moreover, whatever substances waste away through age and decay, nor can you discern what the rocks, which overhang the sea, and are eaten by the corroding salt of the ocean, lose every time that they are washed by the waves. Nature, therefore, carries on her operations by imperceptible particles. Nor, however, are all things held enclosed by corporeal substance, for there is a void in things, a truth which it will be useful for you, in reference to many points to know, and which will prevent you from wandering in doubt, and from perpetually inquiring about the entire of things, and from being distrustful of my words. Wherefore, I say, there is space, intangible, empty, and vacant. If this were not the case, things could by no means be moved. For that which is the quality of body, namely, to obstruct and to oppose, will be present at all times, and will be exerted against all bodies. Nothing, therefore, would be able to move forward, since nothing would begin to give way. But now, throughout the sea and land and heights of heaven, we see many things moved before our eyes, in various ways, and by various means, which, if there were no void, would not so much want their active motion, as being deprived of it, as they would, properly speaking, never by any means have been produced at all, since matter, crowded together on all sides, would have remained at rest, and have been unable to act. Besides, although some things may be regarded as solid, yet you may, for the following reasons, perceive them to be of a porous consistence. In rocks and caves, the liquid moisture of the waters penetrates their substance, and all parts weep, as it were, with abundant draughts. Food distributes itself through the whole of the body in animals. The groves increase and yield their fruits in their season, because nourishment is diffused through the whole of the trees, even from the lowest roots over all the trunks and branches. Voices pass through the walls and fly across the closed apartments of houses. Keen frost penetrates to the very marrow of our bones, which kind of effects, unless there were void spaces and bodies, where the several particles might pass, you would never by any means observe to take place. Lastly, why do we see some things exceed other things in weight, though of no greater shape and bulk? For, if there is just as much substance in a ball of wool 
as there is in a ball of lead. It is natural that they should weigh the same, since it is the property of all bodily substance to press everything downwards. But the nature of a void, on the contrary, continues without weight. That body, therefore, which is equally large with another, and is evidently lighter, shows plainly that it contains a greater portion of vacuity. But the heavier body, on the other hand, indicates that there is in it more material substance, and that it comprises much less empty space. That, therefore, which we are now, by the aid of searching argument, investigating, that, namely, which we call void, is doubtless mixed among material substances. In considering these matters, I am obliged to anticipate that objection which some imagine, lest it should seduce you from the truth. They say, for instance, that water yields to fishes pushing forwards, and opens liquid passages, since the fish leave spaces behind them, into which the yielding waters may make a conflux. So also that other things may be moved among themselves, and change their place, although all parts of space be full. But this notion, it is evident, has been wholly conceived from false reasoning. For in what direction, I pray, will fish be able to go forward, if the water shall not give them room? Or, in what direction, moreover, will the water have power to yield, supposing the fish shall have no power to go forward, to divide it? Either, therefore, we must deny motion to all bodies whatsoever, or we must admit that vacuity is more or less inherent in all material substances, whence everything that moves derives the first commencement of its motion. Lastly, if two broad and flat bodies, after having come into collision, suddenly start asunder, it is clear that air must necessarily take possession of all the vacuum which is then formed between the bodies. And further, although that air may quickly unite to flow into the vacancy, with blasts blowing rapidly from all sides, yet the whole space will not be able to be filled at once, for the air must of necessity occupy some part first, then another, till in succession all parts be occupied. But if any person perchance, when the bodies have started asunder, thinks that that separation is thus effected by reason that the air condenses itself, he is in error, for a vacuum is then formed between the bodies, which was not there before, and the part likewise behind the bodies, which was vacant before, is filled. Nor can air be condensed in such a way, nor even if it could, would it have the power, I think, to draw itself into itself, and unite its particles together, without the aid of a void. For which reason, although you may long hesitate, alleging many objections, you must, nevertheless, at last, confess that there is vacuum in bodies. I have the ability, moreover, to collect credit for my doctrines by adducing many additional arguments. But these small traces which I have indicated will be sufficient for a sagacious mind traces by which, indeed, you yourself may discover others. For as dogs, when they have once lighted upon certain tracks on the path, very frequently find by their scent the lair of a wild beast that ranges over the mountains, 
though covered over with leaves, so you yourself will be able, in such matters as these, to note, of your own sagacity, one principle after another, and to penetrate every dark obscurity, and thence to elicit truth. But if you shall be slow to ascend, O Memmius, or if you shall at all shrink back from the subject, I can still certainly give you the following assurance. My tongue, so agreeable to you, will have the power of pouring forth from my well-stored breast such copious draughts from mighty sources, that I fear lest slow old age may creep over our limbs and break down the gates of life within us, before all the abundance of arguments in my verses concerning any one subject can have been poured into your ears. But now, that I may resume my efforts to complete in verse the weaving of the web which I have begun, give me a little more of your attention. As it is, therefore, all nature of itself has consisted and consists of two parts, for there are bodily substances, and vacant space, in which these substances are situated, and in which they are moved in different directions. For the common perception of all men shows that there is corporeal consistence, of the existence of which, unless the belief shall be first firmly established, there will be no principle by reference to which we may succeed, by any means whatever, in settling the mind with argument concerning matters not obvious to sense. To proceed, then, if there were no place and no space which we call vacant, bodies could not be situated anywhere, nor could at all move any whither in different directions, a fact which we have shown to you a little before. Besides, there is nothing which you can say is separate from all bodily substance, and distinct from empty space, which would, indeed, be as it were a third kind of nature. For whatsoever shall exist must in itself be something, either of large bulk, or ever so diminutive, provided it be at all, when, if it shall be sensible to the touch, however light and delicate, it will increase the number of bodies, and be ranked in the multitude of them. But if it shall be intangible, inasmuch as it cannot hinder in any part any object proceeding to pass through it, it then, you may be sure, will be the empty space which we call a vacuum. Moreover, whatsoever shall exist of itself will either do something, or will be obliged to suffer other things acting upon it, or will simply be, so that other things may exist and be done in it. But nothing can do or suffer without being possessed of bodily substance, nor, moreover, afford place for acting and suffering unless it be empty and vacant space. No third nature, therefore, distinct in itself, besides vacant space and material substance, can possibly be left undiscovered in the sum of things. No third kind of being, which can at any time fall under the notice of our senses, or which any one can find out by the exercise of his reason. For whatsoever other things are said to be, you will find them to be either necessary adjuncts of these two things, or accidents of them. A necessary adjunct is that which can never be separated and disjoined from its body without a disunion attended with destruction to that body, as the weight of a stone, the heat of fire, the fluidity of water, 
sensibility to touch in all bodies, insensibility to touch in empty space. On the other hand, such things as slavery, poverty, riches, liberty, war, conquered, and other things, by the coming or going of which the nature of the subject affected remains uninjured, these we are accustomed, as is proper, to call accidents. End of section 1